All right, David. Let's get this going, my man. Question number one. What is your favorite part of college ministry? Um, probably favorite part of college ministry, uh, a lot of it has to do with students and being able to like build relationships uh, with them and, and watch them grow. That's honestly the best part about it. Um, I, I enjoy preaching and enjoy the teaching component of it, um, but a lot of it has to do with um, just watching people grow and mature in the Lord and then watching them develop friendships that they're going to have probably for the rest of their life, hopefully, um, is a great part of it. Question number two. How do we make and keep Christ our motivation to share the gospel? Um, I think if we're going to make and keep Christ our motivation, it starts with him actually being our motivation. So probably multiple times through our time together this evening, I'm going to say something to the effect of this is why it's important to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Um, When we begin to lose that motivation to share the gospel to keep kind of Christ at the center as we interact with people. It's it's probably as a result of Christ fading from that first position. So um, I find in my own life, I'm more tempted to not share Christ um, when he's not first. And so I'm not thinking about it. It's not the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. Um, and I think that takes training and work. It doesn't naturally happen. I think when you first get saved, you, you kind of, we talk about you're maybe a little bit more on fire, a little bit more passionate. And then as you get adjusted in your life, that's where that preaching the gospel to ourselves daily component makes us feel as if uh, it just happened yesterday. And it keeps it fresh so that when we're out and about, when we're with our friends, when we're um, in our classes, when you know, think about this fall, going back to school and we're in class when Christ is at the, the forefront of my, my mind, it's going to keep that motivation level up there to share Christ. Mm-hmm. So you think you do that basically just reading the Bible continually and, and then being regularly in Scripture and in prayer and, and sort of that kind of thing? Yeah, and I think, too, like if, if I'm you, if I'm thinking about keeping motivated to share Christ, if I'm you, I'm thinking of, um, or even myself, like conversations I'm having with friends about sharing the gospel— um, if I know who you're sharing Christ with and like have a, a regular, um, let's say you, you're regularly spending time with this person who doesn't know Christ. Maybe they're in your same class or you work together. And, and I know that. And when we're, we're having that dialogue together, um, then I can be praying for you. Mm. And I'm also sending you text messages maybe when you're in that class, like, hey, I'm praying for you right now or when you're at work or, or whatever it does. So I think, yeah, we want to incorporate all of the basic spiritual disciplines there, but also that that level of accountability helps us to, to stay motivated. And it goes, it's it's reciprocated. So then you're, you know who I'm sharing Christ with. And, and it's not anything to be like, oh, you're not sharing Christ with you know, 83 people, you're the worst person on the planet. It's, it's accountability for the sake of encouragement and motivation rather than why aren't you doing this? Mm-hmm. So I think that, that really tends to help people too. Yeah. I think personally, like if I'm, if I'm being, you know, reminded and I know that I'm going to be talking to you about it, even like in a week, I'm going to be probably, it's going to be more fresh on my mind. So that's, that makes sense. If I don't feel bad about my sin, does that mean that I am not a Christian? Um, I, I really want to be careful, especially with questions like this. You have people ask you, does this mean I'm not a Christian or does this mean I am a Christ follower? Um, we have a tendency to want to shy away from 
uh, making judgments about people, uh, being Christ followers or not Christians. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I also am a little bit concerned about the emotions. Um, so when I hear a question like this and someone says, I don't feel bad about my sin, does that mean that I'm not a Christian? Well, does it bother you at any level? Um, are you concerned about it? I, I seem to struggle with this sin, but it doesn't seem to bother me. That's a red flag that you're probably not walking with Christ uh, as closely as you should be. It's not necessarily an indicator that you're not a Christian. Mm. Um, when we think about our study in First John, John says that uh, and recognizes that there are going to be times that we sin, that we struggle with sin. And so to, to base our um, understanding of whether someone is a Christian or not a Christian based on emotion is a bad thing. Yeah. But I would say this, if you, if you are watching this and you find yourself, um, you, you, you read this question, you hear this question, and you go, well, I, I, I do know that there are definitely periods of my, time, of my life where I don't feel bad about certain sins. That, that's definitely maybe a wake-up call to, to, to take that sin more seriously. Um, and I think we want to be careful too. What is going on in my life right now where I don't really care about a particular sin or sin in general? I think both of those are good indicators that we need to return to the word. Uh, Philippians talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This would be a time where I'm spending a lot of uh, serious concerted effort, um, with, uh, the Lord and reading the scriptures and really trying to um, search out why I don't feel a certain way of, 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 or don't feel uh, serious about a sin. Uh, but on, on the flip side of all of that, I think it's pretty good indicator that if you say, I'm concerned because I don't feel bad about sin and I know that it should bother me, that's a pretty good indicator that you are a Christ follower mm -hmm. because non-Christians don't care about yeah. sin. They're not bothered by sin. Yeah. It doesn't affect them at all. And I think sometimes in Christianity, we've done a very poor job of explaining that a genuine concern about not feeling bad about sin sometimes can be a good indicator that the Holy Spirit indwells me and I should be bothered by it. Mm -hmm. Sure, for sure. <clears throat> so how do we navigate romantic relationships so that we have proper boundaries and glorify God? Um, I think you're going to have to set up your own personal convictions on this. Uh, the Bible, obviously, we can't say, well, let's just go, you know, yeah. to, to this. You know, I just opened a Proverbs 2 and, and say Proverbs 2 versus this through this address and give you kind of a step-by-step -step way to um, address the, the area of dating and, and romantic relationships and, and build those proper boundaries. But on the flip side, the Bible does give us boundaries just for general life. So... Mm -hmm. 1 Thessalonians 4 says to, to flee sexual immorality. So anything that would um, even begin to hint at um, sexual immorality is, is, is stuff we want to stay away from. And then ultimately, how we care for one another and how we speak to one another is going to directly impact the way that we do the, the back half of this, glorifying God. I think there's a lot of speech that is used in relationships, whether we want to talk about uh, romantic language of, you know, saying I love you or um, starting to talk about marriage. And we, we kind of throw those, those terms and language around pretty loosely. We're not very guarded. And so I think when we talk about navigating romantic relationships, we want to make sure that we're inside the bounds 
of what Scripture says. So we know that Scripture reserves uh, sex to a man and a woman inside the covenant bounds of marriage. And I think a lot of times when we're asking questions about boundaries, um, anything that would contradict what God's Word says as the expectation for what a romantic relationship would be um, outside of marriage is something where we want to put up those strong boundaries and say, not even going to get close to this. Couples are going to have different standards and, and different adults and parents have different standards. It's one of the interesting parts of doing premarital counseling is, you know, where couples have been and, and things like that. But what I would want to, to strongly encourage is being very guarded in the way that you initiate and participate in physical contact, but also in um, the language that you use. Because I think far more often our language can get us into to trouble before our physical activity does because the, the language and the way that we speak to one another, especially in romantic language, sets up mm-hmm. for that type of activity. So even being guarded and, and protecting each other's, we say protect each other's hearts, but really protecting each other from uh, thinking that this relationship is further down the road that, that it really is, is also a way that brings glory to God because we're not leading someone on to thinking, oh, I want to marry you. When in reality, you just like being with that person because they're attractive or there's another benefit that comes with it. So making sure God's word is at the center. And that means James chapter, really the whole book of James, really guarding the way that I even speak um, to the person that I'd be interested in dating mm-hmm. and marrying. Yeah. That's good. Why even bother with the Old Testament? Does it really even impact Christianity that much? Is it really relevant? Um, yeah, so we try to stagger these questions. So um, kind of give us a, a little bit of everything as we go through them. So why even bother with the Old Testament? Does it really even impact Christianity that much? Is it really relevant? Um, well, I think in recent time, it seems like the Old Testament has kind of become a new um, hot button for people to discuss. Like, is it, does it even, I mean, we've changed the words and wording and such to protect the identity of the people who ask these questions. <laughs> so is it really relevant and does it really even impact Christianity that much? Y- yes, um, to both of those. But that's really found in why even bother with the Old Testament. The reason why we want to study the Old Testament is, is multifaceted. Number one, uh, the Old Testament tells us a lot about what we know about God's attributes, his character, and who he is. I think that's lost in a lot of the discussion because we think in Old Testament terms we'll go, uh, that's where we find the story of Daniel, that's where we find the story of David, that's where we find Noah, that's where we find Jonah. All the, you know, the Sunday school one-hit mm-hmm. wonders, um, <laughs> if you will, are all found in the Old Testament. So that's why we would study the Old Testament. And I think that's kind of misleading, and I think that's why it's been so um, overlooked is because the Old Testament actually tells us a lot about the character and nature of who God is Mm -hmm. and what we need to know about him. Also, it sets the stage for who Christ is and why we need Christ. So in my Bible reading plan, um, I've been in uh, just the last couple of weeks, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and and now transitioned to Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the things that happens in uh, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles is the nation of Israel is looking for a, a king that will do what God has said that king will do. And ultimately, all of those kings fail because they're human. And we think of Jesus. We've been talking in Sunday mornings about Jesus functioning as prophet, priest, and king. And, and you have in the Old Testament, 
all of these kings who don't live up to the expectation. They either seem like they're going to, to fulfill the standard, David, Solomon, and then they veer off and are not what God says is the expectation or what the people should be expecting for a king. Or then you just have outright terrible kings who do opposite of what God says. Yeah. You have Jehoiakim as an example of one of these kings who just lives completely contrary to God's expectations. I think the other reason, too, is the New Testament doesn't make sense without the Old Testament. I think we read a lot of the New Testament and we just gloss over Old Testament references because we know what the point of the story is. Uh But really what is happening is they're they're connecting dots for us that bring the whole storyline of of Scripture together. And so um, we need a recovery of the Old Testament in some sense in the evangelical world, in the church world. So preaching, teaching talking about the Old Testament, doing studies in it. Um, because I think once we understand it, um, it, it begins to connect dots for us in the, the New Testament. And, and I would say the strongest reason above all of them is found in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Well, in... As he's writing the New Testament, he's speaking about the Old Testament. Right. So those Old Testament scriptures are important and just as much inspired and important for us to grow as the New Testament Absolutely. scriptures are. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think that uh, that it's necessarily better or worse to focus more on the New or the Old, at least in today's day and age, considering there's, you know, we are living in the New Testament era, um, or do you think that there's just as much Uh, I guess, necessity to focus on both of them, you know, a a decent amount. Yeah, I think you want to make sure that you're really balanced. And I think the reason why that is, is Paul's, for instance, when we talk about prayer, Paul's uh, prayers in the New Testament are really, really good. Obviously, it helps when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Um, They're really good. But they don't often cover the emotion range that the Psalms do. Yeah. So yeah. when I think about praying and talking to God, uh, Paul is a good model, but the Psalms probably are a more realistic understanding of uh, where I am emotionally mm-hmm. and can go there more often. That's why if you're struggling maybe in your prayer life, um, I just read Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, which focuses heavily on praying through the Psalms. I, it's a in my opinion, it's a stronger approach to my prayer life than what I previously was doing, but it's also exposing me to more of the Old Testament. Mm. And so I think there needs to be a healthy balance. And I'm always concerned when we're like, we're New Testament people. Even New Testament people needed the Old Testament because when they were New Testament people, there was no New Testament. Yeah, They're they're living in the New Testament and, and what they're reading and studying and would have been connecting the dots about who Jesus is, is all Old Testament Mm -hmm. writings. So Almost in some sense, we might need, especially in our day and age, to be a little bit heavier on the Old Testament because we're so unfamiliar with it. Yeah. Not to belabor this anymore, but one specific section that uh, is always a little more difficult, at least for me, when I'm doing my Bible reading is uh, the law. So Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that sort of section that's, you know, seems like a lot of very specific things that might not be very practical, at least to us. Um, how do I guess you, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, inspire yourself to push through that and read that and glean 
you know, information and, and sanctification from that? How do you go about that? So let's just take one book because I think we'd be here for a while if we tried to do every one of them. But le- let's take Leviticus, for example. That tends to be the hardest one yeah. out of the group of, we'll call them the group of five. <laughs> it tends to be the hardest one out of that particular section. What I need to be doing is reminding myself what the overall purpose of that book is, and that is showing us the holiness of God and his standard and expectations for holiness. And as I'm reading it, understanding how so much of the little things that human beings do, even in that time period, would make them um, not holy. Yeah. I mean, they're already born not holy, but just the standards for holy living that were necessary to even uh, be able to participate in the community at large um, should make us go, as we're reading through Leviticus, yes, this seems intense and it seems out of date and it seems out of touch. And my response to all that would be the out of date and out of touch is irrelevant because we're, we're reading about a specific time period in history. So... It's not irrelevant. It is, it is incredibly relevant. And also understand what the standard and expectation for God being holy is. And as you read through that, you just walk away going, I am nowhere yeah. close to being holy <clears throat> mm-hmm. as he is holy, which is the admonition that comes um, later in Scripture. Yeah. All right. What financial advice would you give someone who is graduating from college? Okay. Um, <laughs> completely. Complete turnaround. Yeah, shifting gears. Um, so I think a couple things that I would say to them, the, the first thing that I would say to them is, um, make sure that you keep your focus on Christ. Now you say that this is asking for financial advice. So, uh, what are my, you know, stock tips or, mm-hmm. you know, invest here, don't invest there, do this with money. I, I, I would want to encourage them to keep their eyes on Christ because, Remember, everything that you have that's been entrusted to you is from God. And yes, that includes your money. And so being a good steward of my finances in a way that honors Christ. So just a couple principles that I think come out clearly in Scripture. Um, We want to avoid debt and we want to give to advance gospel mission. So the Scriptures are clear that we want to avoid debt. If at all possible, and I understand this is where all of our financial gurus are going to get in and try and crunch numbers. I think the Bible's clear. Debt is a bad thing. So we want to avoid debt. If you're someone who's just graduating from college, you may not have a ton of money. You probably have been accustomed to not having Mm -hmm. uh, money. So live that way. Live frugally. Be able to pay down debt, but also give to um, God's mission. You know, I just was reading... uh, a new little pamphlet that Sam Amadi wrote for Nine Marks on what advice or basically what do I do that now that I'm a new Christian. And one of those things that Sam talks about in there that with new Christians is giving to advance the, the cause of Christ. And, and I think if you are a Christ follower, that should be a, a habit that's already born into you. How can I give in a sacrificial way to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, it's not always going to be fun. It means that sometimes you're going to make sacrifices for things that you could have or things you could be done financially quicker, um, thinking about paying off debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the Lord, in his, in his word, makes it clear that those who are consistently giving to and sacrificially advancing the cause of Christ are, are blessed. Now, that doesn't mean what some people will take it to mean, that if I give money to the church, then God's going to get me out of debt mm-hmm. so much faster. Uh, don't hear this as a soft prosperity 
theology, it, it may mean that your reward comes uh, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. You might be rewarded in a different way, or there might become just a spiritual, a general spiritual blessing that comes from giving to the, advancing the cause of Christ. Yeah. So I think those things, and then the, the financial advice too that, that I would give also would be this. We're kind of conditioned from an early age, especially when we start to go to college, we start to think of our lives in segments. So what are you going to major on in college? What job are you going to take? When are you going to get married? When are you going to start having kids? When are your kids going to start going to school? And when are you going to retire? All of this. And so our life starts to be, become motivated, especially financially, about building comfort and ease. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say financial advice would be um, sometimes there's going to be job offers that come that are good on paper because they're more money. Um, they're more status and influence. But with those, take maybe moving you to an area where you don't know if there's a solid church um, may cut into your the ability you have to, to serve the Lord. Um, so I think there's uh, some advice here too, financially, making sure that I don't uh, sacrifice what should be the Lord's at the opportunity to gain more. And I think a lot of times we don't think in those terms. So you could get a job offer tomorrow that would take you all the way across the country. And you may take it just because it's a really significant boost in pay without knowing if there's a, we just kind of assume there'll be a church there for Mm -hmm. me to be plugged in. I'll be able to do the same stuff that I'm able to do here. And that's not always the case. So really slowing down and thinking about what jobs even I will take out of college um, is important to think about the ability and time that you'll have to give to the Lord. That's good. When Jesus died on the cross, did he go to hell or somewhere else? Okay, well, we'll shift gears <laughs> back to again. theology. Yeah, back to theology and, and to something intense. So this is actually um, really debated in, in the realm of theology. Where did Jesus go? Did he go to hell or, or somewhere else? Because the Apostles' Creed is often what people might be familiar with. He descended into hell. is found in the Apostles' Creed. Um, one of the things I find helpful when answering this question is remembering what does Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm. So we can take from that clue that yes, Jesus died and yes, he does um, experience the afterlife, but no, he's not going to hell to suffer more punishment. In fact, that's actually unbiblical. Yeah. So we would want to say from the textual clue that Jesus gives us about where the thief on the cross is, yes, he's experiencing the afterlife, but he's in paradise, whatever that means for Jesus' understanding. And sometimes we're limited by our own human understanding. But it, it, today you will be with me in paradise seems to suggest that Jesus is experiencing the afterlife, but he's not in hell. So mm-hmm. um, theologians will continue to debate on this, especially because it's gray and there's not a lot. Um, that tends to be where we yeah. uh, like to hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I, I think the textual evidence seems to suggest that he's in the, the life to come in paradise. Uh, but still, and, and that could go into our understanding of what does death look like and where are people going? We won't go there, but um so, yeah, that, that would be the answer to that question. He's not in hell, um, and I would be uncomfortable with someone saying he's in hell experiencing punishment for sin because yeah. he never—the the cross is what's important. He's the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. His death uh, 
is, is what we're after. And then resurrection, uh, obviously, to follow after that. Mm. That's good. That's something that I've talked about before and never thought about the thief on the cross approach to it. That's very, makes sense. When so many people find themselves comparing themselves to others, what scriptural advice would you give to avoid comparison? Um, Paul says, I think it's in Philippians, um, that basically in whatever stage of life he's found himself, he, he has found contentment. He's learned to be content. You know, there's always going to be somebody who, who makes more money than you, um, unless you're like a billionaire. But mm-hmm. even then, I mean, there are billionaires and then there's multi-billionaires. So there's always people who are going to be making more or maybe seemingly have more than you do. And I think God has uh, given us a life to live and our um, contentment level should ultimately be focused on who he is and finding our contentment in him. So um, obviously there are people right now that make more money than me. I think that's a given. Um, It will be for the rest of my life. And I think a lot of times the, the, the danger with comparing ourselves to other people and trying to keep up with other people is that it really pulls us off of mission. So if I'm focused on what you're doing or I'm focused on what you're making or I'm focused on something that someone else has that I don't have, I'm not focusing on gospel advance. I'm not focusing on making much of Christ. I'm not focused on taking opportunities that God has given me. You know, I think it's what is also really helpful And I would encourage you to think about is when I start to feel like I should have certain things or those people are more blessed than I am or I don't get enough. My uh, response to that is remember that just by being born in the U.S. and living here, you're considered one of the wealthiest people in the world. In history. Yeah. And and you have more than most people will ever have. In fact, uh, we are blessed to, to have multiple cars. Neither one of them are incredibly new. In fact, I drive a 1999 Toyota Camry that I love uh, probably more than anyone should love a 99 Toyota Camry. But by just by car ownership and property ownership, even though none of them are busting the banks or anybody would think, man, that's, you know, really slick. That makes me... Um, one of the wealthiest people around. And I think shifting and and looking to scripture and saying, Paul said, in whatever stage of life I have found, I I have, I've strived, I've, I've driven myself almost to the stage of finding contentment in Christ should be the thing that Christians are finding themselves, not with, uh, do I have the latest and greatest of all these things? Mm -hmm. But again, what are you focusing on? Are you living for world's approval. Here's a really good book that would be helpful. Eric Raymond wrote a great book called Chasing Contentment, where he asked some really good questions as we're thinking through this issue that are heart level questions that are piercing and and get me to really think about why am I so bothered by you having more or someone else having uh, something nicer than me? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I heard that I enjoyed that when like talking about discontentment, like if you're if you're really not content with what you have, your issues not like you really break it down your issues with God. Like you have an issue with God and you're not like you're angry at him. Right. And like that and it's in and of itself is usually enough for at least for me to be like, well, gosh, like why am I being so, you know, dumb? Why am I being a baby? You know? I'm um, just a different perspective and an angle. I think that it really has helped me in the past. Yeah. 
What happens to those who never hear about Jesus? Do they go to hell? Um, yes. Um, this is something that I think every time we do a Q&A, we'll, we get this question. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's born out of uh, the concern that, you know, we live in a gospel-saturated society. Um, we uh, that go to church are blessed to hear the gospel week in and week out. And we don't often encounter those who don't hear about Jesus. And that's probably a result of just not being around people who aren't going to church. Uh, but Jesus is clear that those who, uh, the, Jesus and the scriptures are clear that those who never hear about him uh, will spend eternity separated from him forever. Uh, Romans 10 tells us, how can they hear unless someone goes and tells them? Um, and we often will say, well, what about this person here who is, you know, in the jungles of the Amazon and they're, you know, they never hear the gospel. They're innocent. Well, that goes contrary to what we've been studying, even about the nature of sin, that you're born mm -hmm. in sin, that it's imputed to you and it's inherited. So there's no way around it. Romans says, Romans 3.23 says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed enough about himself <laughs> to make himself known through creation. So when you look around the world at large, you go, somebody has to have created this. The unfortunate reality is that information is not enough to, to save you. And so someone needs to share the gospel mm -hmm. with them. And so we need to, with urgency, I think a lot of us assume when we start talking about do they go to hell, those who have never heard about Jesus, we start assuming and thinking about people outside of the United States. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was two years ago, sitting in a coffee shop here in Springfield with a Missouri State student from the St. Louis area. And I was sharing the gospel with him. We were having a coffee together and um, had struck up a conversation about what it meant to, to follow Christ. And when I, I laid out the, the actual message of the gospel, his response is, I, I've never heard that before in my life. And this was in a kid that had transferred in, was part of a degree program from an, another country. He was not, he was a kid who was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, grew up there his entire life, moved here to go to school and, and had never heard the gospel message before. So uh, the other thing I would want to press on this question is don't assume that when we say, what about those who never hear the gospel, that we're talking about people who live in a different country. There are people right here in our midst who have never heard the gospel, even though they've grown up in Springfield or they've grown up in the United States, is not a guarantee that they've actually heard the mm -hmm. true message of the gospel. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of people who maybe have heard bits and pieces or snippets but never really had it explained to them or had the Holy Spirit truly, like, I guess, expose the full gospel to them, and it's, yeah. Yeah, they sure. may have caught bits and pieces of it. Somebody may have made reference to it or yeah. has done an evangelistic technique that kind of alludes to their need for Christ, mm -hmm. but maybe that has not actually presented them with a full, full-throated uh, understanding of the for gospel. Sure. yeah. What advice would you give a couple starting out on their marriage? Really flip-flopping here. Yeah. Back and forth. Uh, you probably keep me on my toes. Um, I, I think for a couple starting out on, on their marriage, a, a couple things. One, first thing, and it's kind of, I've kind of tipped my hand at these questions before. Um, the first thing that I would do is not assume that they have the same commitment level that I have to, to the local church. So hopefully if you're getting married, uh, both of you 
have believed in Christ, you're not getting married to an unbeliever, but you're, you're committed to going to church. Well, a lot of times we can assume because we're going to church together every Lord's Day and Wednesday nights and whatever else, we can begin to assume that this person is committed to Christ as I am. Yeah. I think having conversations about, like, this is what it looks like for me, this is my approach to going to church and being involved is really important. And then staying committed to that, I think a lot of times we can get to a milestone and feel like we can relax mm-hmm. a little bit, maybe ease up. Uh, so I would say that. And then number two is, I, I would say uh, there's going to need to be a lot of grace in, in well, for the rest of your life mm-hmm. um, because you're both sinners and now you're going to be married and spending way more time than you have been up to this point in your life together. And there's nowhere to escape to, um, to get away from. And, and that might seem bad, but what I'm saying is there's a whole lot about premarital counseling where we'll sit with couples and we'll say something to the effect of, we can do a lot to prepare you for marriage, but there's a lot that's going to come that we can't prepare you for. There's a lot of idiosyncrasies about people that um, we don't find out about until we're married. Um, <laughs> I'm convinced that one of the blessings of not of the, of the scriptures, um, you know, expressing that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, and, and you don't live together, you don't do a trial run. I, I'm very grateful for God putting those standards there because I think if Jess actually knew about all of the weird things uh, <laughs> that were about my life, she would have never agreed to, to get married uh, to me. And so there's gonna there needs to be a lot of grace that is exhibited there because you're going to find out a lot of new and interesting things that you never knew about each other when you first get married. And, and then I think just premarital counseling is such an important part of, uh, of uh, getting ready to get married because what Jess and I will say to a couple that's sitting across, this is where we're going to have some of the conversations that you just assumed that you knew the information. Mm-hmm. And, and actually having these conversations before you get married. How many kids do you want to have? Um, what, what, it, what's gonna, what is it going to look like for us if you get a new job out of, out of state? Do we want to live close to our families or do we want to move far away from our families? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, holidays. What are we going to do there? What are we going to do if we say we want to have, you know, two and a half kids, whatever the national average is? What are we going to do if we say we want to have three kids, but we find ourselves struggling with infertility? Yeah. What does that look like? What are, what's going to be our response to that? Um, n- nobody was really having those conversations with us pre-marriage. And the fertility issue one is a, is a, a newer one, I think, that most people are becoming more and more aware of. Yeah. The other ones, we did have those conversations in premarital counseling. But having those and then continuing to talk once you get married and not just thinking that, uh, well, we sorted all of this out before we got married. Yeah. Um, it's gonna, just being patient and kind and long-suffering. And then the last thing, make it a regular habit. This is something that I wish I had been better at. Make it a regular habit to sit down at the dinner table or wherever you are in your apartment and talk about what you're reading from the Bible on a daily basis or every other day. Just make it a habit to do some sort of family devotions. We really kind of did this off and on. And now since Harper, we've had Harper and, 
you know, she's a year old and we're really trying to be intense and, and ramp up our family devotions. I really wish that I had been stronger and more consistent about that when we started. Um, we, we did it kind of off and on, just kind of as life is. Really try and protect that time um, and make sure that that's a regular habit that you would have. Okay. Doesn't the Bible contradict itself? <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Uh, I, no. <laughs> it doesn't contradict itself. Now, at certain spots, it seems to, yeah. or it may seem to not be as consistent. I think probably uh, the greatest disservice that happens when talking about the contradiction of the Bible is we approach um, the Gospels as if um, they're supposed to be four identical biographies. So if you know, if you and I were to to be biographers of a person, um, we would probably find different things about that person that intrigues us. There would be a different um, an, an interest that that person has that, that might seem more interesting to you than would be to me. Um, especially if we just think about just the way that uh, people understand um, people. So that seems to be why we sometimes feel like there are contradictions in the Bible. Because mm-hmm. we'll go to the gospel accounts and, and Matthew's covering this and Mark doesn't cover this and Luke takes this. But John doesn't even talk about any of this stuff. The, the, the gospels aren't modern Western biographies. They're written with an intention, mm-hmm. and they're written to an audience a lot of times that we don't think in, in those terms. And so really understanding who's Matthew writing to, who's Luke writing to, who's why is Mark moving so much quicker mm-hmm. than, than Matthew and Luke, and why does John seem to not do anything that Matthew, Mark, or Luke do? And, and why does Luke tend to go more into detail on certain components than Mark or Matthew or even John um, does? Having all of those frames of reference um, makes it seem like if we operate without those frames of reference, oh man, there's contradictions all over the Gospels. Mm. But when we understand those frames of references rightly, it's amazing how the Gospels go from seemingly contradictory to, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, being those synoptic Gospels is a term we'll, we'll use from time to time, that allows us to, to really see them line up mm-hmm. and, and work together. So, no, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It may mean for some that you're going to actually have to read it a little bit more closely and do a little bit more digging and and, and a little bit more effort on the study side. But, no, the, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And, and we also don't want to just get to this question and then say no and move mm-hmm. on. We want to actually dig in and help people yeah. see why what may seem as a contradiction isn't actually a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of <clears throat> terminology used at different times that may not be the exact same way that you and I would use a specific term. And so you take it as something that it's not necessarily intended to be taken as. Um, and so you just have to understand, I guess, Yeah, more so fully. this is not a 21st century book. I think that's a, 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 a problem that we find a lot of people who read the Bible. They want to read this and because it's in English, right? I've got a, a New King James sitting here in front of me because it's in English and it's sitting here. That word has to mean what I've always understood it to mean. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
even, and, and this is where uh, I've been really blessed by the ministry of, of people like Leland Riken, who's written good books on literary introductions to the Bible. Uh, he helps us to understand, yes, the Bible is a book and yes, it is literature, but we don't approach Shakespeare and make some of the, the Western assumptions that um, we do with the Bible. And sometimes we do. And if you took a British uh, literature or even just a Shakespeare class in either college or high school, sometimes you'll make those assumptions and your teacher will call you out for making those assumptions. You assume, assume that Shakespeare is using a term or a, a, a contemporary American author might be using a term in a way um, that you understand it to be, but that's not how the author intended it to be. And sometimes even those arguments are, are helpful for us. We, we don't let people get away with making comments about authorial intent with Shakespeare and even Mark Twain, then we should hold the Bible to that same yeah. standard. I think a lot of times it traces back to just somebody wanting to find a reason to say, well, this doesn't make any sense. They're just looking for anything they can find. Yeah, and sometimes we need to be better in, re in our response and not just be no, but help them. Because yeah. I think there are people who are who are looking for any reason to not believe the Bible. Romans 1 tells us that they're always going to have those reasons. Mm -hmm. But then there are also people who genuinely feel like this is contradictory to what's being said in another portion. Can you help me to understand yeah. it? I think we've got to be helpful to, to that person who's genuinely confused by it. Mm -hmm. Just a heads up, we've got about five minutes. Okay. I don't know how many questions are left. but I think we're making a good way. Okay. What is the hardest part of ministering to college students? Um, hardest part would be it's such a transitionary time. For the first time in your life, you're making the decision to go to church for your own account. Mm -hmm. um, no one, well, not hopefully, but there may not be a parent who's demanding that you go to church anymore. You might have more freedom than you ever had. You feel like, and you are, in a lot of people's eyes, adults. And so you still want us to help you, but you don't want us to help you. And so trying to navigate all of that is difficult at times. And then just to be just as transparent as possible, um, 18 to 25 year olds can be some of the flakiest people on the planet. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll grow out of that. I know people who are even way less committed to Christ at 40 than they were at 25. So I think that makes it difficult. And just trying to communicate that you genuinely are not trying to parent. You're trying to help them grow in the Lord. And that's part of shepherding. But a lot of times what is viewed as shepherding or concern is viewed as you're trying to be my mom or dad. Yeah. Trust me, I do not want to be your dad. And I, and I know Jess does not want to be your mom, but we want to be there to help you and, and help prod you to, to taking your walk with Christ uh, more seriously. Mm -hmm. So... God can change his mind. That implies that his initial plan is not, in fact, perfect. So which is it? Does God change his mind, or is his plan perfect? Uh, so I, I think a lot of times we read in the scriptures, God is changing his mind, or he repents. And, and I, again, it goes back to our earlier question. We're reading in an understanding of the text mm -hmm. on the text. So let's just go to a, a simple uh, story with Sodom and Gomorrah as a perfect example of this. People say... See, here's a perfect example of God changed his mind. He tells Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, well, would you do it if there were X amount of people? And Abraham kind of whittles it all the way down to this number, only to find out that there aren't that many people there in the city. Yeah. 
and we say, well, see, God would change his mind. Well, no, God's plan is perfect. He doesn't change his mind. His plans and ways are perfect. A lot of times what's being done in these exercises is God's actually changing us to be in line with his plans. Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of prayer? Is it only for us to align with the will of God? Yeah, so the purpose of prayer is to align us to the will of God, but we do know that God hears us. And and so there's a lot of mystery that goes into prayer that we want to iron all the way out so we know exactly the right things and go, well, if this is a waste of time, then I won't pray. And I think a lot of it is to align us to, to what God's plan and, and will is for our life. But we are genuinely asking God to work in ways that we may not see or understand. Mm-hmm. And so... This goes back to God has a plan and a desire, and he's working these things out for his ultimate good. Think of Romans 8. A lot of times we'll go, God's working everything out for my good. That's a prosperity theology undertone to it. God is working everything out for his ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And and our prayers align us and bring us into uh, what that plan and path is. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it, it is to align us to God's will, but God is ultimately um, using it to also grow us and make us more like him through it, through our dependence on him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what is the purpose of studying theology? How does it impact someone who isn't a pastor? Um, well, there, I, I think this is a, a really good question. The, the reason why we want to study theology is to know why we believe what we believe And the reason why it impacts someone who isn't a pastor is because you will be in situations that I will never be in. And you will have conversations with people that I will never have. And if you don't know why you believe what you believe and you never um, get to that point and you just kind of leave that to the pastor and just think that we can suddenly just appear on site, you won't be prepared. First Peter says that every believer, not just pastors, Mm -hmm. are supposed to be ready for to give an answer for the hope that lies within them. And that's what studying theology does. It helps you. Yeah, it may seem intimidating, and you may think, man, this is only for pastors. But I would just tell you, there are going to be conversations that you have that I'll never get to have. And and I would encourage you to study theology to, one, grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is and your love for him, but also because there's going to be people that you have conversations with that will frame that. Mm -hmm. What should we do when we don't understand what we are reading in our personal devotions? Slow down. Slow down. Take your time. It's okay to not know everything immediately when you're reading it. Get help. Ask a friend. Ask pastors. Get commentaries. Get books. That will help you. But slow down and pull it apart, I think, is really what will help you as you um, think in those terms. That's good. What truth do you want every college student to know by the time they leave the college ministry? Um I would hope that they would know that um, they're loved and cared for, and we desire to see them grow in the Lord. Um, there's a, a lot of fun that we will have and jokes that we'll do, like the intro to, to <laughs> tonight. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, that they would know Christ, grow in their relationship with Him, and go live on mission is not just a catchphrase or a missional statement. It's really what we desire for them. And I think if we're not careful, we can leave the college ministry with great friends, great fun time, and somehow have missed the biblical content that comes along the way. This is not a social club. 
if you want that, you can find it on campus. But I would just encourage um, our students to know, one, that we genuinely love them and desire uh, that they would continue to grow in Christ.